Thank you for that intro. The kids don't make me angry, you know. Not here, anyway. <laughs> Not other people's kids. <laughs> Sorry, son. <laughs> so it is, it is a privilege to be up here sharing with you today. It is a little nerve-wracking. I admit that freely. Um, and it's a great responsibility to share God's word with you. And uh, so that's uh, something that I've been thinking about as I got ready. Uh, thank you to everyone who prayed uh, and encouraged me while I was getting ready to do this. It's been very helpful. Um, and uh, I needed it. So, And uh, doing this, getting ready for this lesson, just gave me uh, so much of a new appreciation that for what Pastor Rich does every week, you know, to get ready to teach in here. Um, we are, uh, I had a hard enough time just doing one, you know, so, so for him to keep coming back faithfully every week for years and years to be doing this, it's an amazing gift that God's given him. It took, it took a lot out of me to, to make one, one lesson. So um, the good thing was is that my lesson today is about trusting in God. So I had to live my lesson in order to get up here and do the lesson, you know. I, uh, I couldn't get up here and talk to you about trusting in God without trusting in myself. And that's, that's often how it goes with teaching kids, too. I have lessons to teach them, and the lessons are very often for me. Um, but it's only by trusting in God that I was able to get this message done. It's only by trusting in Him that I can stand here and deliver it. So last week, Pastor Rich talked about unfeigned faith. And for anybody who wasn't here... Unfeigned faith is fake, faith that's not faked. It's not, not, a, it's not a show. And uh, it has a strong connection with what I'm going to talk about today. I didn't know he was going to talk about that last, last week when I started planning my lesson. But I'm happy to see that they kind of go together. And uh, I can ride his coattails a little bit. That's nice. Nice introduction to what I'm going to talk about. Um, unfeigned faith is real. It's sincere. It lives inside of our, uh, the deepest part of our hearts, the very core of our being. It's not a bunch of motions that we go through uh, to show how spiritual we are, to uh, earn anything. Uh, it's, a, it's a real faith. But what is, what is faith? Faith's a word that people use for all different purposes out in the world. And, and uh, so I thought that maybe it'd be good to just say faith is trust, trust in God. You know, that's, that's what I'm going to talk about today. Faith is trust in God, and trust in God is faith. They're, they're interchangeable. And, then, and God uses both throughout his word, and uh, they're pretty much go back and forth, and then they're the same thing. Faith is trusting God. So that's what I'm going to talk about today, is trust. If you like the word faith better than trust, then you can just kind of switch those around. You can write down everything I say, and then go and change all the trust to faiths if you like. That's up to you if you want to do that. You know? <laughs> but um, I'm going to read the verse that immediately comes to many of our minds when we hear the word trust, when we're talking about trusting God. It's uh, one of the better-known pairs of verses in the Bible. It's uh, one that people have hung in their houses and uh, have it for their life verse a lot of the time. That's it. But it's an important one. That's why it's so popular, is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. These are words of wisdom that God gives to us through King Solomon in Proverbs. How much of our hearts are we supposed to trust God with? All of them. And are we ever supposed to lean on our own understanding? No. But what does that mean? What does it mean to lean on our own understanding? It means 
to kind of think about situations that we have in our life and say that, you know, I think I got this covered. I don't, I don't really need God's help with this. I'm pretty good in that department of my life. I, I think, I, think this, I got this under control. I don't really need to turn to God for help or advice in this because I got it. You know, that's, that's leaning on my own understanding. That's thinking that, that I have it all figured out. And when you say that to yourself and you lean on your own understanding, you set yourself up for failure. And it's not because God is waiting to punish us when we get cocky. It's because we need his help in all of our ways and everything that we do. If we're going to live this life for him, we need his help. And so that's why we need to trust in him and not lean on our own understanding. I believe that God's calling us throughout all of Scripture to trust him. It's, it's written all through the Bible, after, through all the accounts of the Old Testament and all the writings of the New Testament. We see it again and again that God is calling us to trust him. He's asking us, do you trust me? We could go through and find so many examples of this in both the Old and New Testament that we'd be here for days. But it's potluck day, so we're not going to be here for days. We're going to be here for a little while, and I'm going to give you a few examples. But you can go through it, and just if you read through the whole Bible, if you read it from cover to cover, I think that it, you'll just see it speak, spoken over and over and over again. God is asking us, do you trust me? He's calling us to trust him. So... First person, first account we'll look at is uh, Abraham in the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 12, we'll look at that. Abraham is kind of an obvious choice when we're talking about trust or faith because in Romans chapter 4, he is described by Paul as the father of all of us who have faith. Paul says that because Abraham had faith, not only are all of the Jews his offspring, but all of us who have faith, too, are also his offspring, in a way. The Jews are his natural offspring, but we're his spiritual offspring, those of us who put our faith in God. And so he's, he's a good example uh, when we're talking about trusting God. What is the first step of faith that Abraham took to trust in the Lord with all his heart? Well, we'll read... Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 12 right now. And his name was Abram when he started out. God actually renamed him later, so when, don't get confused if you see Abram instead of Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So basically what we have here is that God called Abram to pick his whole life up and move it to a strange land and live as a vagrant in tents. He had a home. He had a place that he had lived for his whole life in Haran, and God called him and told him that he wanted him to get up and go. And he made promises to him. He promised that he would give him a land, and Abraham followed. He trusted in God, and in doing so, he, he became the father of all who have faith. I think it's easy to forget that Abraham wasn't a young man when he set out. 
You know, you think of someone that you know, God might call to do this kind of thing, you know, like you think, oh, a young guy, a guy who's eager for adventure, you know, someone who wants to set out and make his mark on the world. He called a 75-year-old man, and people did live longer back then. Abraham ended up living to be 175, but that doesn't mean that 75 was like 30 to them. You know, it says that um, when Abraham had his son Isaac, when he was 100, he was an old man. He was already an old man. So I, I think what it really is is that people were old for longer than, than that you can like just kind of like that you uh, like uh, make uh, 75 middle-aged and things like that. I think he was old for a very long time. So he was already an old man. And, uh, and yet, you know, and, you know I, as you get older, you get set in your ways, right? You, you don't want to pick up everything and go. And, you know, I'm not even that old, but I, I moved two years ago. I moved from Riverside to Warwick. That's about, you know, 15-minute move. And I almost had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> my, wife, my wife can tell you all about what a state I was in, trying to pick up all my stuff and move it. Anybody who is here that helped me, too, can, see, so can I testify to that. But, you know, God didn't tell me like he told Abraham, you know, out loud, I want you to move. But I do believe he was calling me to move, and, and I've seen the results of that move over the last two years, that God has just blessed our family in so many ways because we made that move that I think God was calling us to. And uh, so God is good. God is faithful. And I didn't have a nervous breakdown. I almost did. <laughs> almost. But in his grace, God, God kept me just on the edge of the nervous breakdown, and I didn't go over. And within a week, the, the Warwick felt like home. So... <laughs> So God's good. And all that to say that, you know, my example there is that, that this was not something easy that God was calling Abraham to. He was calling him to leave his country, leave his family, leave everything behind. You know, he took some of his stuff and his, his servants and things, but, you know, the comfort that he had there, it was, it was going away. He was going to be on the road for the rest of his days, pretty much. He'd stop in places, but he never had a permanent home, really, ever again. God promised that he would give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, but Abraham didn't see that himself in his lifetime. It was hundreds of years later that God gave it to him, but he trusted that God would, and he trusted God to lead him. So in that, he became the father of all who have faith. I think God is calling us to trust him and step out of our comfort zone, too, sometimes. There's lots of things that might scare us or make us uh, feel like, oh, no, I can't do that. No way. But like Abraham, God is calling us, calling us to, to speak to that person that, that needs to hear about Jesus or to get involved with a ministry that, that uh, could use some help or that we feel called to. And uh, we need to just put aside those fears and just trust God in that like Abraham did. And now, Abraham was a man of such great faith, but there were times in his life that he did not have the faith completely, where he did lean on his own understanding a little bit. Later in the same chapter, chapter 12, the same chapter where he left his home and left everything behind to follow the Lord, there was a famine in the land where he was staying, and he went to dwell in Egypt because of the famine. There's no mention that God sent him to Egypt. That was his idea. Did it on his own. He's kind of leaning on his own understanding. Oh, there's no food here. I better go somewhere else where there's food. While he was there, he told his wife to pretend that she was his sister because he was afraid 
that the people there would kill him to take her for their wife. She was a beautiful woman, and he, he thought that I'm a goner if I walk into this country with this beautiful wife of mine. They're just going to off me so that uh, they can have her. So in that way, he wasn't really trusting in the Lord. He trusted, he trusted the Lord to leave his home and leave his country behind, but he didn't trust the Lord to provide food for him when there was a famine, and he didn't trust the Lord to keep him safe when he was in Egypt. And some trouble came from it. In uh, verses 17 through 20 of chapter 12, it says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. Pharaoh had taken Sarai into his house to be his wife because he didn't know that she was Abraham's wife because they lied. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. She wasn't worth the trouble to Pharaoh, it seems. I mean, his whole house was inflicted with diseases. and you know. And after that, Pharaoh pretty much kicked them out of Egypt. And where did they end up? But back in the Negev, where they had been right before they went there. They ended up in the exact same place that they had been before Abraham decided to take this detour to Egypt. And now, in God's mercy, he did protect Abraham, and he did provide food for him. But it caused some pr- trouble with the Egyptians, and it wasted some time. It, this detour was just a, a kind of a whole big waste of time for Abraham and his family. The, the consequences with the Egyptians, it, it m- makes me think that often it's not only ourselves we hurt by not trusting God, but other people around us, especially in terms of our, our witness for Jesus. If we're freaking out and not trusting God ourselves, then why are people around us going to think that they can trust him? It's a pretty bad example. Looking back to Abraham, he didn't even learn his lesson from that whole incident because he did the same exact thing in chapter 20. He went to a different land and told a different people that his wife was his sister again. And those, the same thing happened to those people. God's judgment came on them. Their king tried to take Sarah into his house. And again, the king told him, get out of here. What are, you, what are you doing to us? You know, That's to paraphrase. Those aren't the exact words of the Bible. But, but Abraham didn't learn his lesson from that. That, that seemed like a, a thing that he had trouble with, is, is the, this fearfulness that somebody was going to kill him and take his wife. That was, that was kind of a, one of the mistakes that he made. It was, it was a time that he didn't trust. He was afraid. And God wants us to trust him when we're afraid. God wants us to know that he's in control even when a situation seems like it's going to be a problem, even when we're in a different country where we think that someone might want to hurt us, we can trust God. And Abraham could too, but, but he chose not to. But through all the mistakes he made, Abraham on the whole remained a man with a deep trust in God. That's why in the end he's called the father of all who have faith. His whole life had a pattern of trusting God. He followed God wherever he led. The greatest example of his trust comes from chapter 22, if you want to turn there. Chapter 22 of Genesis. A lot of you remember this account. It's one of the more well-known things from Abraham's life. God called him to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. The son that God had miraculously given to Abraham and his wife 
Sarah in their old age when they thought that they couldn't have children. This is the son that God had promised him that his descendants would come from, the son of the covenant that God had made with Abraham that he would make him into a nation. And God called him to sacrifice him. He didn't have any other sons and he didn't have any expectation of having any more. Didn't have any other sons with Sarah, I should say. He had another son, Ishmael. But Isaac was the son of the promise, not Ishmael. But Abraham was prepared to do just as God commanded him to. He got up, he took his son, he took some servants on a donkey, and he took a donkey with some wood, and he journeyed for three days towards a mountain that God told him to go to. And then in verse 5, he told his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, we might be tempted to think that Abraham told the servants this because he wanted to kind of cover up what he was doing. He didn't want to tell them, I'm going up on that mountain to kill my son. And, but that's, that's what we're tempted to think, that he was just covering it up. But in truth, he was actually planning for both of them to come back. He trusted God so much that he knew that since God had promised that Isaac would, have, would be the source of all of Abraham's descendants and the, and the source of a great nation of people, Isaac didn't have any children yet, he was still a boy, he knew that God would make it work out somehow. And so he could tell his servants, we're going to go up there and worship, and we're going to come back, even if he sacrificed him. Now, why do I, why do I believe this? Is it just an idea of mine? No. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the New Testament, verse 19, it speaks about this, and it says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So we see that Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac because he trusted that God could raise the dead. And this is a really an amazing uh, leap of trust and a throwing out of all of his own understanding because up until this point in the Bible, God had never raised anyone from the dead. That's recorded anyway. Um, so Abraham didn't come up with this idea that God can raise the dead because he'd seen it done before or that he'd even heard about it done before. He came up with it because... He knew that God was God and God was capable of doing anything and that God had promised that his son Isaac would be turned into a great nation. And so if I sacrifice Isaac on the fire, God will raise him from the dead. That's just, that's just how it's going to be. It was an amazing amount of trust. Of course, we know that God didn't let him go through with it. Just before Abraham was ready to kill his son, God stopped him and, they offered, and God showed them a ram for a sacrifice instead. But after Abraham was ready to take this step of trust in God, God promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore because he had not held back Isaac from him. Now, was Abraham perfect? No. We, we saw some mistakes that he made right there. He was a sinner, just like you and I are. But overall, his life displayed a pattern of trusting in God, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. God wants us to trust him in every situation in life. When we don't understand what's going on, when we can't figure out why he would want us to do something, he still wants us to trust him, just as Abraham trusted him in that situation where he was going to sacrifice Isaac. Now, the next example I have is a little less familiar, probably. You know, many of you probably have read it, but not as often as Abraham, because there are no children's songs about King Asa. 
So Father Asa had many sons. No. But if we turn to 1 Kings chapter 14, there's some things we can learn from King Asa. I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, my mistake. We get to Kings later. Remember to give all you guys time to turn your Bibles. That's, that was something I, I almost forgot to do. <sighs> Gives me time to get a drink of water, too. <laughs> so Asa. Asa was a king of Judah. In the beginning of his reign, and for most of it, actually, Asa was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. As you go through Chronicles and Kings, you see... Uh, both kingdoms kind of go back and forth with good kings and bad kings. Judah had a lot more good kings than Israel ever did um, after the kingdom split in half, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But uh, Judah, Judah had more good kings, and for most of his reign, Asa was a good king. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 14, at the beginning of his reign, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. Many times, even the good kings would remove one thing and not remove another. They would remove the idols and forget to get rid of the high places. But Asa got rid of everything. He didn't want to leave anything that was going to lead people into idolatry. He wanted people to worship the Lord. Moving down to verse 11, we see when faced with an overwhelmingly vast army poised to attack Judah, he turned to God for help. Verse 11, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. That makes me think of that song we sang today. We can rely on you. And Asa was relying on God. He had nowhere else to turn, and he turned to God. But he trusted that God could defeat this army. That was the only way that Judah was going to be delivered. And God answered that prayer. He struck down the enemy army. And Asa continued to reign with a zeal for, for God and a trust in him. After this great victory, he went on to uh, just lead a revival in the people of Judah and to uh, just continue to rid the land of idols. He even took his grandmother out of her position as queen mother because she was an idol worshiper. She had an Asherah pole. And so he, he removed her from that position of uh, kind of respected royalty uh, as queen mother because of that idolatry. He didn't want her leading the people astray. The first 35 years of Asa's rule were a wonderful example of a man who trusted God in all his ways. And God blessed him with peace throughout that time. But unfortunately... In the 36th year of his reign, Asa kind of went off the rails as far as his trust in the Lord. Um, Basha, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, fortified the city of Ramah in order to block anyone from getting into or out of Judah on the main road about five miles north of Jerusalem. It was going to be a problem for Israel. It was, it was a sign of aggression. Basha had an army just like any other country, and uh, he was an evil king. And so Asa, he was concerned, he was worried, he was afraid of what was going to happen with Basha, the king of Israel. And where previously he had faced this overwhelming number of Cushites and called on God to help him, this army was smaller. 
the northern kingdom's army was smaller, and he decided to lean on his own understanding. He took the silver and gold that was in the temple treasury, and he gave it to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, to pay him to attack Israel. Ben-Hadad had, a, had previously had a treaty with Israel. He was paying Ben-Hadad to break the treaty. Now, if you can pay a guy to break a treaty, is he really the kind of guy you can trust? If he, if he will take your money and break his treaty with someone else, is that someone you can count on long-term? But that's what, that's what Asa did. He turned to an idolatrous neighboring country for help instead of asking the Lord for help. The Lord, who he had seen, win them an amazing victory at the beginning of his reign. Now, Ben-Hadad was more than happy to take Judah's money, and he did attack Israel. He, he broke his treaty with them. Money talks, he said. <laughs> and, and in a worldly sense, for the moment, it worked. Israel became busy fighting off Ben-Hadad's army, so he withdrew his troops from Ramah and left Judah alone for a while. Now, does that mean that we don't need to trust God in every situation? I mean, it worked out, right? Everything went according to plan. He trusted in his own understanding, and nothing bad happened, right? There's a good quote from Charles Spurgeon about this that I found. This is what he said. Now, many people in the world judge actions by their immediate results. If a Christian does a wrong thing and it prospers then at once they conclude it was justified, he was justified in doing it. But ah, brethren, this is a poor blind way of judging the actions of men and the providence of God. Do you not know that there are devil's providences as well as God's providences? This plan had immediate earthly success, but it had many bad consequences later. Firstly, it took Asa away from his dependence on the Lord, who was the only person fully capable of helping him in every situation he would face. What would happen when, ben, when the money ran out and Ben-Hadad wasn't his hired hand anymore or if he decided, or Israel put up a better offer? Secondly, it put him in league with a pagan king, someone that he was not supposed to associate with. Even if it was for monetary gain, Ben-Hadad and Asa were allies now. And speaking of the monetary gain, he took money that was meant for the temple to do this. It was meant to be for the temple's upkeep and, and repairing of the temple. And he took that and he used it to pay off these pagans. So let's read verses 7 to 10 of chapter 16 and find the answer to the question of, was that the right plan? If we haven't already given it away. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. Hanani was a prophet, and this message was from God, rebuking Asa. Did Asa repent? That would have been the wise thing to do. The message directly from God telling him that he had messed up. But in verse 10 we see, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. Well, that's about as far from repentance as you can go. He doubled down on what he had done. He 
didn't want to hear anybody tell him that he had done the wrong thing. Even if it was someone speaking for God, he threw him in prison. And then it seems that he oppressed some people, some of his own people, um, whether it was just out of being angry or because he had just, was just so far away from where he was supposed to be that it didn't seem wrong to him anymore to do that. God was calling him to turn and put his trust back in him, but he didn't want to listen. A few years later, we see in verse 12, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. He died of the foot disease that he had. That's a very sad end to a life that for many years was so devoted to the Lord. Once Asa stopped trusting and depending on God to help him, everything went downhill in a very quick hurry. It's pretty clear to me just how much Asa needed God's help and how much we need God's help too. We need his guidance. Good or bad situation in our life, big or small problem that we have, doesn't matter. We need God's help. Galatians 3.3 tells us everything we need to know about this. Are you so foolish after beginning in the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That's what happened to Asa. He began trusting in the Lord, and in the end, he relied on human effort. And we have a tendency to do that. It's part of our fallen human condition that we have a desire to do things on our own, to earn God's blessing, or even to earn our way into heaven by being good enough, or to try and solve our problems ourselves instead of turning to God. But we're not able to do it. We need God. We need, and it's his great, great desire that we lay down our instinct to do things on our own and to just surrender and, and give it all to him, to depend on him instead of our own understanding. Because our own understanding, if we're being honest, is pretty weak, just like King Asus. We only see a little bit of what's going on. God sees the whole picture. God sees all the consequences of everything we do down the line. He sees all the events of history like he's reading a book, and he can turn your head to the end. But we can only see the little thing that's going on right now. So my own understanding, it's, it's not much to work with. But God, he's got an understanding of everything. And I could take advantage of that understanding by leaning on him instead of leaning on my own understanding. When you have a project that you want to do, a task or some sort, you know, you want to work on a, fix something in a car, uh, repair something in your house, learn how to use a new computer program or something, you, you don't just pick it up and do it in your own understanding because you don't have any understanding about it. You turn to someone or, or some manual or some video that has a better understanding of it than you do. God has a better understanding of everything than we do. You know, he's, he's got the manual for everything in this life and, uh, and his word. That'll sh show us what we need to do too. He's the expert on life, and we're not. We don't have the understanding. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us on our own. Now, the next example is a bit more encouraging than Asa because it certainly doesn't end on such a sad note. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to look at Elijah. few highlights of Elijah's ministry up until the point we're going to look at. He served as a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. His first order of business was that he prophesied that there would be no rain, no water for 
um, a few years except when he called for it. Um, and after he made that prophecy, God sent him to live in a ravine, you know, a, a crack in the earth almost, where he could drink from a brook and God provided food for him by sending ravens to feed him bread and meat each day. If that's not an example of how God is able to take care of our needs, I don't know what is, you know, to send birds just to feed one man living in a ravine. Um, and after he left the ravine, God, God told him to, he went to a widow's house where God provided for him, the widow and her son, by keeping their flour jar and their oil jar from running out. They were on their last bit of flour and their last bit of oil when Elijah got there, but for several years, they didn't run out because God was providing for them miraculously. It was a never-ending supply of food. They always had enough for each day while Elijah was there, while the famine was going on. So God was showing Elijah through all that that he could trust him, and he was showing the woman and her son that they could trust him too. The woman's son even died of an illness, and God brought him back to life when Elijah cried out to him in prayer. God showed his power in that to all of them. But from there, Elijah was sent to confront Ahab, the evil king of Israel. He had been leading the nation in idol worship, and his wife had been killing off God's prophets. And unafraid of the king, Elijah went and confronted him. And what followed was an amazing display of the true power of God as opposed to the worthlessness of an idol. Many of you might know this story already, but Elijah set up a test for the prophets of Baal, where they both set up an altar, they both put a sacrifice on it, and they both prayed to their God that the sacrifice would be burned up. And whoever's sacrifice was burned, they were the ones who knew what they were talking about. They were the, that was the real God that they represented. Now, the prophets of Baal went first, and of course, Baal is a worthless statue, and nothing happened, even though 450 prophets of Baal were working themselves into a frenzy and cutting themselves with swords and just going nuts. All that going nuts doesn't do anything when you're talking to a statue. <laughs> but let's read how Elijah's turn went, uh, starting in verse 33 of chapter 18. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, I love that Elijah had the trust in God to do this miraculous act. God did the miracle. Elijah trusted that He would, to burn up a soaking wet pile of wood and the sacrifice on it so that Israel would remember who the real God was, not Baal, who could do nothing but the Lord. And what an amazing victory God gave him there on Mount Carmel, not Mount Caramel. <laughs> I have to stop myself from saying that every time I read it. <laughs> but after this amazing thing happened, 
Ahab went back to his wife and told her all about it. She became so enraged that she sent a messenger to Elijah and told him that she was going to have him killed, just like the prophets of Baal had been killed after this whole thing. And Elijah was afraid. He ran away. And I'm not saying that having the queen of the country you live in put a kill order on you is a small matter by any means. That's, that's a pretty big problem. But after everything that Elijah had seen God do, did he have anything to be afraid of? God was with him. Who could be against him? But he ran. In verse 3 of chapter 19, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Elijah didn't just run away. He ran 80 miles away. He ran straight out of the northern kingdom, all the way through Judah, and out into the desert. I read one commentary that said if Jezebel, Ahab's wife, had really wanted to kill Elijah, then she wouldn't have sent a messenger to threaten him. She would have sent someone to kill him. What she really may have wanted was to discredit him. And what could be better than making the courageous prophet of God who stood up to the king run for his life? As I said before, our trust in God or the lack thereof has an impact on the people around us. People who are wondering if what we believe is real. And it could be very disheartening for the people of Israel to see the prophet run away after this great victory. Run away from Jezebel. The words of his prayer seem to show that he is a man who's starting to forget just a little who gave him the power to work the miracles. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. He's asking, what good am I? I'm no better than my ancestors. Well, he wasn't any better than his ancestors when he worked all those miracles either. It was God who did it, not him. And his goodness wasn't what did it. It was his trust in God. Then he went on to just say, let me die. I, I'm done. I, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm not any use to you. But that throws out God's ability to do something good with anyone who will trust in him. Elijah thought he could be of no more use. Well, why? If God could use him before, he could use him again. God can use us, even after we've messed up. So God could have rebuked him right there harshly, but instead he treated him gently. He sent an angel to give him food and water, and he, Elijah journeyed further than he already was to Mount Horeb, where God passed before him on a mountain and let him experience his presence his power, his glory. Elijah had to cover his face so that he wouldn't be just destroyed by God's presence passing in front of him. And then in a still, small voice, God asked him in verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the truth is he was hiding and being depressed. That was, that was what he was doing. But his answer was, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. My response, if I was God, and I hesitate to speak for God, but it would have been, what part of that is too big for me to handle, Elijah? But God was very gentle with him. 
and he told him that he was going to give him help. He had him go and anoint a new king over Israel, a new king over Aram, and anoint a new prophet, Elisha, to be his assistant and his successor after he was taken up to heaven. And God furthermore told him that there were 7,000 more people in Israel who had not bowed to an idol. Elisha said, I'm the only one left. That was kind of an exaggeration, wasn't it? We all have a tendency to freak out when things get scary, when things get stressful, when things get um, to be more than we think we can handle. But the good news is that God can handle any situation. He can get us through it. And if we turn to Him, then He is just faithful, faith, so very faithful to help us through it. And he, I think of the times in my life that I have freaked out and, and just worried myself sick about something that I didn't need to. And God was very gentle with me too. He didn't slam me down for not trusting him. He, he gently showed me that I don't have anything to be afraid of. I've never been left on my own. I've never had to do anything that God didn't help me do that he called me to, this lesson included. He didn't leave me to do this myself. He's here to help me. We're all like Elijah, though, and we need to be reminded or remind ourselves of the truth we already know. Whether we're panicking or we're up late at night losing sleep over something, we just need to remember that God is in control and he's calling us to trust him and see what he's going to do next. So, I gave you three examples from the Old Testament. But I think throughout all of Scripture, from the Old and the New, it's all pointing to one place, this call to trust, and it's calling us to trust Jesus. Have, it's the, it raises the one important question, the most important question I can ask you. Have you placed your trust in Him? Have you called on His name and asked Him to be your Savior? Maybe you're listening to this and you haven't. That's the greatest step of trust you'll ever take. And it's the step that will change your eternal destination from hell to heaven. To put your trust in Jesus. It makes you one of God's children to put your trust in Jesus. It brings you out of the darkness into the light. It rescues you from sin and death. And guarantees your place in heaven. We can't earn it, no matter what we do. It's only by trust, trusting in what Jesus did for us on the cross that we can be saved. That it's done, it's finished. It's not our own goodness, not our own works, not our own understanding. We can't lean on our own understanding. Our own understanding says, oh, if I'm just a good enough person, then God will let me into heaven. But that's not how it works. God wants to know, do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus? Do you believe that he died on a cross to pay for your sin and rose again? That by his sacrifice alone you are saved? Maybe you've been wondering how you can know for sure that you can trust God. If you take that step, if you put your trust in him, then you'll know. I can tell you that from personal experience. And I know that many, many people in this room can testify to what Jesus has done in their lives once they put their trust in him. None of our lives are ever the same after that. You can't 
put your trust in Jesus and have there not be a change. So ask around. The stories of God's mercy and love at work in all of our lives are powerful. They're a witness. If that's you right now, and you want to lay down the burden of striving to earn your way into heaven, if you want to make your, be made brand new by God, and to be certain that you'll spend eternity with God, if you can place, you can place your trust in Jesus right here, right now. It's very simple. Or maybe you already have, but you want to renew that trust. Maybe you've been trying to do things on your own. Maybe you've been worrying about something that God can handle because he's able to. You can do that today, too. I believe we all need more and more trust in God each day. It's not always easy to trust God with all of our heart, as Proverbs tells us to. That's a work in progress. But God will continue to be faithful to bring that work to completion. So let's pray. Lord, we do confess that there are times when we falter in our trust in you. We ask you to forgive us for that, Lord. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to depend completely on you today and every day. Help us to trust that you have a plan for our lives and that you're in control. Help us when we forget to trust you to take a step back and remember just how very good you are to remember your faithful love for us. Let that calm us and give us peace. Bring us back to trusting in you. I pray too, Lord, for anyone here and anyone listening that has never put their trust in Jesus. I pray that you would help them to see just how much they need you in their lives. If that's you, you can pray along with me now and receive what only Jesus can give, salvation and eternal life. Just say these words in your heart. Lord, I know I need to trust in you. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I trust in your finished work on the cross. Please be my savior. Rescue me from sin and darkness. I put my trust in you and you alone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being so completely worthy of our trust. Thank you that you're always faithful. Thank you that you love us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.